everybody. So today we have on the show Dr. Helen Colias. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Doing well. So this is really our first time meeting, getting to really talk. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and now you work for Precision Nutrition, right? Yep. Yeah, yes. And so I have been familiar with Precision Nutrition really since I don't know if it was day one, but early in in my you know health and fitness journey. Um, I remember seeing John Berardi's stuff back on, I think, T Nation and yeah, yeah, yeah. books and things like that. Um, so it's been around for a long time, and I think it's it's known in the industry for sure. You know, it's one of the big names that's known. So, uh, you know, what is some of your background and your involvement with the company, but also just your own individual background? Yeah, so my background is kind of, I guess, less traditional. Uh, so I did my undergrad in biochemistry. I was also playing varsity soccer, so I was interested in exercise physiology end up doing my master's in exercise biochemistry and then was really got kind of ended up going back to kind of more like basic science and looked at molecular biology and cell signaling in muscle development and muscle regeneration which seems kind of far from precision nutrition and while I was doing my postdoc uh, at Johns Hopkins uh, I ended up I was reading a lot of John's stuff too at, mm -hmm. yeah, through, TT, through T Nation and and I reached out to see well if there was anything like that I could do for them. And I ended up initially writing research articles because ultimately a lot of the basic stuff was still, like I had the basic research knowledge to say, okay, well, I'll read a paper and say, well, is this sound or is it not sound? Right. And we were really actually interested in looking at the genetics of, you know, um, genetic differences and if we could, there was a nutritional component that you could prescribe diet. Right. And we can talk about this a bit more later, but the short answer is not really. <laughs> Like, yeah, right. <laughs> no, uh, not at this time. And then, yeah, started doing like writing a fair bit for them. It was 2008, I think, was when I started with them just writing. And then was then now kind of ended up moving more towards the their certifications where we're looking at, uh, you know, summarizing best practices and uh, research. And uh, yeah, so I think I'm, the official title is Director of Science right now. Okay. Yeah, so that was the, the evolution for PN and kind of training. Right, right. Awesome. So, yeah, I mean, and going into your background a little bit, it is different for sure and more unique, I think, than some other people I've had on the podcast. And I was looking at some of your articles that you had written and one that I thought it's a little separate from the typical person who I deal with in the, I guess, fitness industry. And you, this was the case study, I guess, on The Biggest Losers. And the reason right. I thought that was interesting as I read through it was because in one sense, like I said, most people who I'm maybe working with don't have 150 pounds to lose, but we are often very interested in losing some amount of fat and keeping it off. And that is something that I think a lot of people have a problem with. With bodybuilding, it's interesting because most of the time, especially as a male, there's a planned period where it's like you've dieted and now you want to gain the fat back. And, and especially, like I said, as a male, I almost feel like yeah. that's maybe one of the reasons that you don't see as many complaints about metabolic damage and things like that with men is because it's almost incorporated into their off season that they're going to gain this fat back and it's kind of part of the plan. Whereas women, they often do want to stay leaner. Um, I, I think there are more self image issues there a lot of the time. Um, and so you see that more frequently, but even now, like, you know, having done this, you know, the whole lifting game for a long time, I've even kind of consigned myself to saying I want to stay leaner and not keep doing the bulking and cutting, bulking yeah. and cutting. 
And it's interesting to see both the psychological and physiological aspects of the body kind of fighting staying lean, you know, and there's increases in hunger. Um, obviously, when you diet just from losing weight, you kind of slow down your resting metabolic rate. And so the, the paper you wrote talked about that, but it also talked about some interesting adaptations we saw long term. So just real briefly, can you give... But it's, it's been a while to see how much I remember. Yeah, so basically yeah. what ended up happening was, and it, it could, and this is the thing with this this very specific, and anybody, I think almost everybody in the fitness and, and nutrition world, and most people are familiar with The Biggest Loser, where mm. it's a very stressful situation. It's it's not what you would consider like a healthy way to lose weight. It's just like sure. there's they're, they're, they're exercising like, like for hours at a day, uh, I'm honestly shocked that there hasn't been a significant health like event. Sure, yeah. Uh, and they're eating very little, and and they're also there's I can't remember how much money. How much money were they going to win? Was it like hundred thousand, or I think it ramped up Oof, to like half know. a million. Anyway, so it was a significant amount of money on the line, and there was ratings involved, and so they wanted to, and it's a they wanted people to lose a lot of weight for this to look really impressive. So I think that that's a component that is largely. I think the stress involved with the weight loss right. has an, will have an impact with it, and I think specifically with this uh, this biggest loser study, and it was really well done. It was a, it was like five years, I believe, was the follow up, if I remember yeah, I correctly. Six years. Five six years, and so they actually tested them right after, and then they tested the the contestants six years later. And I was actually surprised that people they they were able to follow up. But what yeah, really. basically what they found was um, that. After six years, their hunger cues were still like through the roof, and every and almost everybody gained back all, all the weight then, some, which isn't surprising. They were still and they still had the hunger cues. Right, right. And 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 I can't. And honestly, it's been a while. I can't remember the exact hormones they measured. Was it ghrelin? I think they measured. They measured leptin, and what surprised leptin. me is that. So they showed. I mean, so for people who you know, aren't super familiar. I mean, we see leptin decrease when you diet and yeah, when you, you lose, lose fat. body fat. Yeah. Right. Well, specifically we see... diets fat. It's related to fat mostly. Right, mostly. right. And as expected, when a lot of these people gain the fat back, their leptin did go up. Yeah. But what I actually found interesting is, you know, we've kind of, so, you know, go back five, 10 years, there was people talking about metabolic damage and then that's kind of been debunked. That's not really damage. It's just a natural yeah, adaptation. Yeah. But we don't want what, you to die. Your body doesn't want you to die, right, basically. Right. And it looks like we're going in that direction. Right. But typically what we've always, well, now what we've been taught is like, well, no, that was kind of BS. And, and like when you increase your calories, your metabolism will come back and it will be fine, especially when you gain weight. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like yeah. at least the numbers that they had in this study were showing roughly they were 300 and some pounds, like low 300s resting metabolic rate of around 2,500. Yeah. They dieted down to an average of 199 pounds. Resting metabolic rate went down to about 1980 or so. And then going all the way back to 270 pounds and on they, average. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and they didn't come with, back to, yeah, to the baseline. Which, yeah. That actually really surprised me. Like almost to the point that I was wondering like, were there methodological errors in the study or something, which I don't, I'm not saying there were, it's just that was the first time really seeing such a stark contrast to me. Um, so, do we have speculation as to why that would be the case? Well, I think that that why they it didn't return is like, I think well is it the stress as a component? Because what's interesting is it was people like was it because it was quick? And it's like well no it doesn't seem to because what's interesting yeah. is they've done bariatric surgeries and and done similar studies where they look before and after and with bariatric surgeries you don't see this weird residual kind of 
um, right. adaptation right. Like you that you would expect that you would so you would expect this all these hunger cute all the it's the same things to happen if it was solely weight. Right. So there seems to be more going on. People are like, well, what happens if you lose weight slowly? Will that help? It's like, I don't know. I don't yeah. I don't know. Like this is it was what was startling about it is like you said, you'd figure that and once they've gained back the weight, would you'd you'd assume that they would have gotten really close to baseline, if not exactly the same. Yeah. If it was an adaptation, if it was a true adaptation. But it seemed that now whether it was the stress or whether it was it was the rapid weight loss, that when they came back their body was still like it was almost like trying to like protect itself from it happening again. Mm. Like there's a just there's a dysregulation because it's just, it's, and we're talking like significant like hundreds of pounds. Yeah. So I think right. once you start getting to these really weird extreme, um, and it's getting more common, but they're really you're on this extreme of of physiology if you are like two and a half times what would be considered like uh, uh, a body weight where you could function normally, like right, within, right. let's say, let's say 20%, 25% body fat for, for men. So I think it's, there, it was, this is a big, interesting question mark that I don't know if, you know, it would be nice. Well, it's two things. One is like, it's one study. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's one study and uh, it's a very unique study and I would like to see it done again in Definitely. a much more controlled environment. Uh, I would like to see a comparison with different, uh, weight loss part like is it the weight is it mm -hmm. the stress is it the amount of weight is it the rate of weight loss is it like I said like there you know you looked at it it doesn't seem to be the rate of weight loss or the weight loss right. itself because uh, bariatric surgeries I think it was right. like sleeve surgeries they they didn't have this problem right. um, so there's all these like and it's it's kind of like well there's something else going on what that is I yeah so I'm kind of leaning towards stress and the other thing too is I don't know how forthcoming the the, the the TV producers were as far as what exactly was happening on that show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but even so, like the follow up was years later. So I would think, as far as like the TV aspect, wouldn't be a huge aspect no. there. I'm surprised but... they let them do it. Is what yeah. I mean. that's the only yeah. part I'm surprised by. Well, and, and why I thought it was so interesting is like you know, for a lot of people listening to this, they know Dr. Lane Norton, and he was the one who kind of coined this whole metabolic damage term. And then yeah. he's since rescinded that. A lot of people kind of crapped on him for that and said like, no, it's just an adaptation. But and when I look at- Almost semantics, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, that and that's the thing to me. It's like, to me, it's like, does it matter? Like what you're calling it, like we know what we're talking about. Like, yeah. I think happening. the perception, I think the perception of it, it being damaged is that you broke your leg. But in reality, it's right, like your right. body is compensating. Almost like if you were working out, it's like the scarring and the increase in muscle mass is not damage, oh. it's an adaptation. And that's, right. and so that it's more of the, 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 the connotation of it. Right, and even when we looked at, you know, you'd hear things like people who, have dieted more, like the number of times they dieted corresponded yeah. with like how fat they were. And you could say, you know, if, if you wanted, you could say, oh, well, you know, continuing to diet causes problems, but it could easily be the other way around, right? It could be that yeah. people who were gaining a lot of fat yeah. and were more predisposed to being fat dieted more. Both make sense. Yeah. This is the first thing where I've really seen like actual concrete numbers. And again, it's only one study. Yeah. Why this... they would gain back, why would they would gain back the weight? It's like, well, because they're, they're constantly at a yeah. stage where they're, they're hungry and their body's trying to store more, more fat, even years later. And even after they've gotten to the weight that they were before. Yeah. And, and I would, I'd love to see more data come out because you don't tend to see this with bodybuilders. Most bodybuilders who diet down for a show, Yes, sometimes they get into this kind of binge purge cycle, but yeah. a lot of people who've been at it for, you know, they've had 10 years of competing, a lot of them 
anecdotally state that they find like the first time was the hardest and then they get better at, they almost get better at dieting. Um, I've certainly not noticed, you know, I've had many blood panels done and my, when I diet my thyroid hormone, which would have been interesting if they measured that, but my thyroid hormones drop and within, you know, a couple months they get back to normal and it just, it's, it's never been that the calories keep getting lower and lower. Um, or anything like that. So, yeah. well, it's, 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 but, but you're you're probably you know you're starting at you know a fairly like healthy body right. weight. Nothing like these people. Yeah, and I think the other thing too, and I, I started looking into it later in, in my research career, but I never really got to pursue it that much. Is the, really the ratio of fat to muscle, and I think that I think really for metabolic health, and and this may play a role in adaptation, is that how much muscle you're carrying. And the ratio of fat. So really, and I would I would say that a lot of these guys who lost, it wasn't. I think there were some some seasons where they actually looked at body fat, but by and large, it was just weight. Right. So right. So it's like we're just gonna lose everything, and so you're not having the I guess the the muscle there that's actually producing adipokines that is really an endocrine organ. Right. Right. And right. and so I think that if you're a bodybuilder, you have that advantage. And how much I'm sure it plays a role, but how much it plays a role and also the amount of fat that you've lost and how long this mm -hmm. period of stresses. And and so I think it would be interesting to see if you took somebody who is relatively lean and say, well, we're going to lose five percent of your five uh, percent body fat and somebody who's uh, obese and say we're going to lose five percent of your body fat, right. maintain right. muscle and then see is there a difference? In, right. in in this adaptation and then and then the, can you maintain this this thing and because you, you know you start getting below like you know 15 percent body fat as a guy your body's like no 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 <laughs> no we're not, right. we're not doing this under 10. it's like i don't you know i don't know what's going on outside but we're going to try to push back yeah. up to whatever to let's say 10 15 depending on how old you are and your genetic predisposition so you'd think that if somebody is let's say 35 percent body fat if they drop down to 30, their body would kind of prefer that. Yeah. That would be a closer to like what it would be kind of ideal for survival. Yeah. Yeah. The only other comment I was going to make is it was interesting when looking at the gastric bypass surgeries and they had noted that not only do, you know, their numbers tend to kind of correspond with what you'd expect given like formulas and everything, yeah. but also that they didn't lose any more lean body mass than these people who were exercising. Yeah. And I wonder one if that just shows the detriment of doing these crazy things like the like the show, but also yeah. I, I think they just measured lean body mass, which obviously isn't just muscle. You know, yeah. I mean, a lot of times they'll lose organ weight and, and yeah. water and things like that. Um, if anything, I, I wonder if it kind of goes to show that when you're obese, losing like truly losing muscle is not really a huge concern because I, I doubt they were losing a ton of actual muscle. And if the amount lost between gastric bypass surgery and these people who were actually exercising, I, I don't know if you have different thoughts on that, but for me, usually what we hear is like when you're that fat, you don't have to worry a ton about muscle loss. It would be interesting to, if they had done, I, I don't know even know what they use, if they use DEXA or what they use, but to actually measure like muscle versus water and things like that. I think, I think they use DEXA and I think, yeah, it becomes a really like interesting thing and i think that i have like I, you probably have a bit of a bias because they think that muscle is important right, right, you, want, right. you want it to be important it's like well yeah. i spent all this time uh but it could be that you get to a point where you know to to do it you know you know again really and to do these experiments are going to be ridiculously long term like five yeah. six years but you'd want to say okay well we're going to exercise and you lose weight you're going to do the, the gastric bypass and you lose weight and we look at lean body mass or and then maybe strength 
Like maybe not yeah. even actual lean body mass, but say, okay, how, and again, it would have to be a very like kind of contrived strength test where it's like, like, right. like, you know, like leg extension, like it's not going to, they're not going to be doing squats. They're not going to be doing right. like a right. whole body thing. Cause, and so, you know, I think strength, and that's one something nobody's really done is a couple like, okay, we're going to look at body, like lean body mass. And we're going to look at strength with the assumption that if those correlate, then this, you know, we're feeling that at least a fairly significant portion of lean body mass is muscle and he changes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. And I, and I find it like, I think that also it's a kind of naive, I think for, 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 for people who are trying to coach somebody to lose weight where they're, they're like, well, you're not trying hard enough or I've done this or, and it's like, oh, it's, yeah, you're in sure. a different, you're in a, I think it becomes a very different space at some point where you, you're, you're, I, there's a level of dysfunction and, and even looking, I was, it was interesting. I remember what was it? What it was, I think it was, um, oh, what study was it? It was actually looking at uh, that the fat cell itself ends up becoming pathological once it gets past a certain size. Oh, so that actually changes in it's what it secretes. So below a certain size, it's actually when it secretes things, it's anti-inflammatory. And then once it gets past a certain size, it actually secretes um, inflammatory. And I can't remember. I have to go check and see like which interleukin or or. Yeah, that's really interesting. So there was this it's something that I never occurred to me because I, I kind of we I think we think of it as just the mass, right? We don't think of each individual cell having a different response right. based on its like its size, its volume. But right, it right. makes it makes sense that at some point it becomes pathological. Yeah, um, you know, speaking of just I guess like different types of fat. You know, before we start recording, you mentioned that you had done some work with brown fat, uh, but maybe not written too much about it. That's actually maybe surprisingly not something that you hear talked about in the fitness industry. Like you were saying, you were surprised nobody yeah. tried to market <laughs> okay. it, right? Yeah. No, there's because... no supplement to activate brown fat. Like what? Right, this right. Is... We can well, start like. <laughs> My understanding is most of the research is, is in mice, uh, but to be honest, it's really not an area that I'm super familiar with at all. Um, so maybe you could yeah, educate it was, us. It was a really fascinating thing. So in 2008, up until 2008, probably when you went through undergrad in school, it was like, well, only rodents and babies have brown fat. Right, right. Yeah. And, up in, and up until 2008, that was kind of like the conventional, not like wisdom. And then... And it was two papers came out. Barbara Cannon was like one of the lead authors in the one. And what had happened is, and this was done in humans, they did um, uh, PET scans with um, a specific, it was actually, originally it was done for cancer, just look at, to find cancerous tumors that, that d cancer does use glucose predominantly, and it was radio labeled uh, glucose. And then they found these spots light up. And then they're like, well, you thought it was just cancer. And then, but then you can inhibit it with beta blockers. So like, wait a okay. second. And then the technicians are like, yeah, we see this all the time. <laughs> uh -huh. And they're like, what? Yeah, yeah, we see it all the time. And it, so it, it turned, they thought it was just an artifact. Yeah. Artifact. But it, it actually, they uh, they went into it and they looked at it and they, they took samples and it was uh, brown fat. And so brown fat, for people who may not be familiar with it, is this really interesting tissue that is very much this, you know, almost like the mix of fat and muscle in that it, it actually does um produce like actin and myosin it doesn't use it but it actually does it and it has a lot of mitochondria it does store fat the way like white fat would but it's very modern metabolically active and it just uses it just usually it's kind of associated with keeping you warm and that was kind of the you know as with small animals and babies they need to stay warm right 
and it could still be a component in adults, uh, especially the, the the original spots that they found were like near the neck. Uh, and so places that you might want to keep warm, like obviously the neck, you maybe want to keep the blood warm going to your brain would be important. Right. But they've uh, the other uh, type of brown fat that they found is actually found in visceral fat, and it's converted. It seems okay. to be either converted from preadipocytes or converted from uh, actual like mature white fat. And and that became really interesting because it became a question of like, well, is this why some people like are metabolically healthy at heavier weights? Mm-hmm versus uh, other people who are not and and also brown fat has a ridiculous amount of mitochondria and sure. and it's just this basically a sink for calories which is why i'm surprised nobody's trying to use it in the right, in, right. right to activate it in in um in people where it's like here this is an activator of brown fat uh, even if they're you know clearly you know the supplement industry doesn't actually have to have any proof for any of this but, right <laughs> but it's a good story and so what they found, what, what was interesting with this is that they found that lean people tend to have more active brown fat, okay. especially when they're exposed to cold compared to obese individuals. And this was all the original 2008 papers. Uh, and it became, again, chicken or the egg kind of a thing. Is that, is it, well, do people who, are, who don't have active brown fat or as active brown fat more likely to gain weight and become obese versus people who are lean? So... There is a lot, like it's interesting actually why part of the reason that you can actually activate brown fat by eating spicy food to a degree. Like this is not okay. like maybe like, this is not like you're going to start downing, you know, uh, jalapenos and then like right. lose weight, which I'm sure somebody has tried. And then the other thing is the idea that to be outside would make you cold and then you would lose weight. It doesn't seem to work that way. There seems to right. be. I have heard that one. Yeah. Yeah. So then, uh, then uh, well, you know. Then it then it makes no sense, right? Because then people who are like living at the equator, they should be much heavier than people right, who live right. like further. As you, as you go north, there should be a really nice like BMI right. graph that basically <laughs> people like skinnier, and then then everybody would just go up north to lose weight. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so brown fat, I really found the most fascinating thing about it though was it really like that had expressed and made it made like actin and myosin and muscle specific proteins that it never uses. And mm. it was just like, really fascinating. And, and there's a whole field now trying to figure out how to activate uh, brown fat in, um, in like white, t- white fat okay. to basically convert it. And then it can um, in- improve the metabolic health of, of the individual, at least in rats. This, they haven't been able to do it for ethical reasons. They haven't done it in people. Right. So as of now, there's not really any implications in humans. I mean, we, we see it, but as far as like any way to benefit us, really. I think you know, what ends up, what likely will happen is we'll find a lot of things that people do, like, you know, eating more protein potentially, like, or, you know, exercising probably activates it. So, so I think things that you would do to lose weight will likely would activate it to one degree or another. Right, right. Uh, and so uh, it's going to, and it might be... When I like, there's things that, so it, is, it tends to be activated through sympathetic nervous activity, which is why beta blockers stop it. But okay. then you're like, well, so then you're like, if you're stressed, so this should be good, right? Because you're having an asynch- and then and it's like, well, no. So there's like a lot of counterintuitive things. Women tend to have more brown fat, which again, seems very counterintuitive because it's metabolically more active. You figure that women right, would be right. lean. And so there's things that are very counterintuitive with it. And they're still like, you know, it's been about 12 years, but it's still, they've, they've gone really down the mechanistic 
pathway to try to figure out how exactly to turn it on, how to do all this thing. Right. Because clinically, it's very difficult to measure how much brown fat somebody has because, you know, you'd have to stick them in to get a PET scan. And sure. there's only so much radiation that, that people <laughs> want to be exposed to. Right, right. So, and that, that was the other, when I left, they were looking at basically, that was the big push is try to figure out a, an easy clinical way to measure brown fat activation. Okay. And to my understanding is that hasn't happened. And until that happens, I think we're going to be kind of stuck with animal and, and a mechanistic model. Yeah. I mean, that's always, I think, kind of like the start of research and interesting. You know, we, we see that things work. And like you said, maybe a lot of these things that we find result in more fat loss. One way that it did it maybe was activating more brown fat. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have a way to, you know, really manipulate things to do right exactly until at least for the time being but it gives us maybe ways that in the future we can manipulate it which is cool yeah yeah and they're like when i they were looking for a lot of drug targets and i don't think they've found anything as of yet and, and then i was like it was like well exercise and in, in nutrition right right or a potential drug target that we haven't or drug that we haven't figured out yet so I'm right like, eh. right <laughs> this um, might be easier to do but yeah yeah speaking of which you know i know my understanding, it's been a little while since I've looked at this, but I believe that when we look at mice without, like when they knock out leptin, they yeah. tend to be pretty obese. Oh yeah, uh, it's crazy. Yeah, but my understanding is also that giving leptin does not tend to result in a lot of fat loss. Am I remembering that uh, correctly? You no, know, it works great for mice. In like, even in mice. normal leptin? Yeah. And a normal leptin. So, even though, so if you have a leptin knockout mouse, a mouse and they give them leptin, they will lose weight. If you, right. you if you um, if you know if you over if you feed them and you give them leptin, they tend to lose weight. Um, and there, there seems there there is cases where you can make a, a mouse leptin leptin resistant. But what happened was right. You probably remember it's like leptin. We solved it, right? Like right, right. At one point, they thought it was going to be like the miracle. Yeah, and so then it then it was like oh leptin resistance oh like so really I kind of look at it between type two diabetes and type one diabetes where type one diabetes is like you just you just need insulin to to mm -hmm. regulate your blood sugar and so if you didn't have leptin which are there's there are humans who have don't have leptin they're not producing leptin so if you just give them leptin then then they'll lose weight right. But those are very few. So that's kind of like not having insulin, the type 1 diabetic. But yeah. by and large, most people are leptin resistant. And again, it's a bit of a chicken or the egg thing is like, if they're leptin resistant, do they gain sure. weight or did the weight gain cause the leptin resistance? Right. And so, and then exercise and, you know, like losing weight tends to improve leptin resistance. Right, right, right. So, right. so there again. So there again, so it was like the holy grail there for a couple of years until they realized that very, very few humans had, were not, they thought, oh, humans, oh, people who are obese must have a, right. a mutation in their leptin gene, and that wasn't the case. Um, and it was so leptin resistant, see, more complicated. <laughs> right, more right. Now, that makes sense to me. If you, obviously, if you're leptin resistant, then just giving more leptin isn't going to fix the issue. Now, my, so what you're saying is in... Uh, knockout mice, giving them leptin, obviously in that case, yeah. helped just like it would in a human. But for mice that had, let's just say, like normal genes for leptin, did who were not overweight, did giving leptin make them even lose further weight? I would have to look if they ever looked at normal weighted mice and, com yeah. and compared. Because I think it seemed that the, the story was simpler in mice. Mm-hmm. And okay. it was, and then, well, lab mice, right? How, whether this would play out in, in, a, in a more, like, you know, wild 
um, mouse situation. But yeah, it was for sure it was like like overfed mice and it was also done in like yeah leptin knockout mice but i don't know if they were already lean if you could yeah. you know can you basically drive it down right it's like you know, have the shredded like mouse. well that's what i would wonder from like a bodybuilding standpoint you know i mean like professional bodybuilders obviously who don't compete naturally they look for everything they can right so they could be totally youth thyroid but they'll take thyroid medication they'll take things that they don't need and I'm almost surprised that I've never that's really a, heard of it. probably too expensive. Like you would yeah, have to Yeah, get, that's the other thing. It's not like it's readily accessible, so. Yeah, they would have to, and I don't know if they have, they must have, they probably have it for research purposes, but I don't think it's ever been like yeah. available. Cause, it, Cause again, I think there, there probably is a few clinics that, that have it available. It's ridiculously expensive again, I'm guessing, because how many right. people are using it for a clinical application, like for actual treating of, of patients. So that might, it's probably like steroids are cheaper. Yeah, certainly. But even as like, if you look at those, like the obese individuals going back to like the, the biggest loser, I would assume that as they lost that 100 plus pounds, they became less um, leptin resistant. Yeah, and so then maybe in theory, if after they dieted down, they were given leptin, that would then maybe help them. Go for or, or even just help them maintain, you know, rather than have the the fat gain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So their body is like, oh, we have like they're, you're kind of artificially telling the body that there's extra weight. Basically, yeah. And I don't it's know. Like, if that's oh, we have, yeah, too. and so the, as a treatment, so that so you use it as a treatment, so when when they they wouldn't gain weight because the body you're kind of tricking the body into believing you already has gained. Right. Weight. Once the resistance has gone down, so that's actually yeah, a really I, that would be a really cool. I think. Yeah. Like, study I think we just solved it. I think we just. That's we just solved it <laughs> exactly. Just discovered the solution. So yeah, that'd be something to look into. Um, we did kind of talk about you know going as far as like resistance and intolerance. Um, one of the other articles I re- uh, read by you was on carb tolerance and, and intolerance, and that's a I, I think a term in the industry that some people just think they just i don't tolerate carbs and i used to think i think a lot of people who were at one point heavier or fatter like i was as a kid you just assume you don't tolerate carbs i remember there was a lot of talk on like how well maybe you should use a ketogenic diet to bulk up because that'll keep you leaner even and as somebody again who is always kind of was like skinny fat growing up i thought that made a lot of sense in my experience actually when I've tried to bulk up with very high fat, lower carb diets, I actually seem to gain more fat proportionally. Um, and, and so I don't think it's as simple as, oh, well, you put on fat easily, you're carb intolerant. Um, so when we say that people have this carb intolerance, what are people really meaning and, and what does that imply? Well, I think what people mean, I'm not sure, but with this article, it was actually specifically looking at uh, this amylase gene that they were they were looking at um how and that wasn't a mutation it wasn't any polymorphism it wasn't it wasn't a uh, a difference in in the sequence of the gene itself it was just how many copies of this gene do you have and it's called amy one is actually what the gene is called and so with amy one you can have it was it like three i can't remember i think it ranged from like one or none to like 14 or something copy mm-hmm. numbers so the idea is that more copies you had the more your body would produce of this uh, of the amylase. And amylase is just something that breaks down carbs. Right. And it turns out the more copies that you had, you tended to live in regions that had uh, like agricultural soon agricultural like I guess uh, an agricultural culture sooner mm-hmm. or earlier. Like so, Japan uh, where there's a lot of rice and you and traditionally there was a lot of carbs in your diet. They had a lot of amylase, like right. a lot of this, a lot of copy numbers, and it didn't. 
and eating, and it didn't seem to correlate with um, with increased body weight. While you had other regions uh, like northern uh, Russia, where you're like very very few copy numbers, and they mm -hmm. traditionally had a low uh, carb diet uh, culturally, and they also um, didn't have a, much of an agricultural like. Uh, culture where they, they didn't grow. They basically were hunter and gatherers for the most part and they ate a lot of meat. And and so from that perspective, there seems to be a, at least a genetic component. And then they also looked at it's if you had more copy numbers of amylase, you seem to be more insulin sensitive. So and why? Who the hell knows? Like there was a lot of like, hey, this is really cool. We have no right. idea why. Yeah. yeah, yeah and, right. and so I think that that is a component where where there is a, a, an underlying genetic reason why people, why people could be. And I think, well, the problem is with, with a lot of genetic stuff is that one gene or one or a number of copy numbers of the gene is, is like one very small piece of a much larger puzzle as far as, let's say, regulating, you know, carb, uh, carb intake or, or carb metabolism versus like fat metabolism or whatnot. So I think that, so there's like a pre, that's a genetic predisposition, but I would argue that if you, you could, there's a pre, like it's a predisposition to can push yourself one way or another. And that's probably what happened with you is that maybe you were quote unquote carbon tolerant, but by sh shifting to some degree, like what you ate and how you worked out and the, and really the proportion of muscle to fat, then mm -hmm. I, I, then you, you kind of shift, uh, how your body's able to metabolize carbs right. and fat. So I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I think a lot of the tests that people use or claim to use uh, don't hold any water. And this, and this, this study that came out, and I haven't followed up on it lately to see where this research went. But amylase is like was really. It seemed like such a benign kind of like this is just right. an enzyme. It's not like regulating anything really. It's just breaking mm -hmm. down. And this was actually it was a, a specifically salva like like the the uh, amylase in your mouth. Right. So it wasn't like pancreatic. It was like, well, what the hell? Like, it's like, why? And so this idea that if you, and then, but why? That's, that became the interesting question. It's like, why would it matter? Like, is this, is there other genes that are associated with this? But why would it matter if I can break down carbs more effectively in my mouth? Right, right. <laughs> like, it would make sense while you're eating more carbs. And then you'd want to eat more carbs maybe because it would be, it would taste slightly sweeter. Mm -hmm. But you would, that would be a pretty good argument against being tolerant to carbs because you would start eating them and it feels sweeter right, yeah. and you eat more and more right so what like so it became this really and that's what happens with i think most researchers like this is really cool it makes no sense right and we have no idea what exactly is going on but it's really really interesting and that's really where i think from a genetic standpoint where the carb tolerance is like there's a lot of really cool things that arguably make very little sense if you start like thinking them through it's like why but what like how but why and right, then also, right. I think there's going to be a huge layer of like epigenetics, which is the impact of lifestyle and even what your parents' lifestyle or grandparents' lifestyle was on your, how your genes are being expressed. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things, I mean, people know that I talk about genetics a lot um, and it's not to give this excuse. I mean, it, it's tough because a lot of people don't need to hear that, oh, you know, maybe it's your genetics or something. A lot of people, even if it's true, it, it's not necessarily completely helpful. However, I do think, I mean, sometimes it can be helpful, but I think from like an, almost from like an empathetic standpoint, I think it's good to know that genetics have such a huge influence because there are people who really are trying very hard, yeah. who are going to struggle a lot 
And for somebody who it just comes very naturally to, they might never really understand that unless they become a coach perhaps and have you know hundreds of clients and they've seen, oh, this person really is trying. I mean, a lot of times you see that somebody who's never trained anybody and just has great genetics or something, it's hard for them to relate. And that's not just with like bodybuilding, that's sports, that's yeah. other things that aren't physical endeavors, you know, intelligence. If, if you're just an amazing student, you might just not understand. Well, just study more, you know, they just, they're- you know, What's your and, problem? This makes sense. Like this is- Right, easy. right. And it, you know- You're just not just, applying um, yourself. It's like, no, no, no. Right, exactly. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure we've both seen that in our schooling where some people, they just, it just didn't come to them and other people, it came very naturally. Um, and so, with the whole like fat loss thing, I mean, something that I've talked about before is when I was maybe 21, um, I was prescribed thyroid hormone and I always said it was done a little bit prematurely, I think, you know, I was probably tested too close to when I was finished the diet and I, I think as a 21 year old, I wasn't really that skeptical. I was just like, well, okay, if you think I should take it, I'll take it. And it was amazing to me how much it changed a lot. I mean, you know, in terms of like my sleep, my hunger, I have never been more ravenous in my life. My, my hunger was through the roof. Um, it was the first time I'd ever like cheated on my diet after like 10 years of like, like priding myself on never yeah, cheating yeah. on my diet. It was just like, I don't know, it was just crazy. And then also how quickly I lost weight. I mean, just so many things changed from that one hormone. And so you got to think like, for somebody who's maybe naturally on the very high end or very low end or you know other how many other hormones and neurotransmitters and enzymes vary genetically you really don't know how difficult or easy something is for somebody um and so again not to just let people off the hook but i just think it's important to remember that your experience can be very different than others well yeah and i think what ends up happening is is it's ultimately i think what happens is too is sometimes people think well it's my genetics and therefore i'm not you know, maybe I'm, I need something special. And the reality is, is like fun, the, like the foundational fundamental things don't change. You might not be responding as well as someone else, but you kind of like, you need to be in a caloric deficit. You need to like, you know, your basal metabolic rate may be really hard, high, but, and so you don't have to work very hard to get that, but this foundational right. things that need to be done, and it may be harder. It's like, you know, it's like if you're running, if you're running, a marathon, you know, it's this, it's all the same. You just not be mm -hmm. as good at it, right, right? Right. Yeah. So it might take you like six hours to like to get through it versus like you know the like a two and a half hour or two hour run runner. But but the fundamentals are the same. You still have to travel that distance, and you oh, still right. have to. So I think genetic predisposition is like a huge factor in like how your body responds. Right. But I think what people like people a lot of people like well I'm gonna get a genetic test which and then it's gonna tell me what I should eat and what I shouldn't eat and I totally. kind of feel people are like ah they want to hear that they can smoke and then watch Netflix <laughs> this is right. gonna work right, right. but yeah. the reality is is like it's gonna be the same like but not the vast majority is gonna be the same and the minor variations are not at this point we don't know enough to right. say okay well this is how all the the things interact and for you you know. If you did this combination, which I don't think is ever going to happen, I don't think they're going to find like, oh, well, it turns out that you're really unique. Mm -hmm. And if you use like, if you eat apples and like, and then pork and this other thing, and then you have to do it like two times a day, not and then, but you can do something right. like you know like that. It's not going to be, be that clear, and it's not going to be that different. I agree. I mean, yeah, that's a great point. It's like how you're going to respond is going to vary dramatically, but what you have to do is probably similar not that there's no differences i mean yeah. of course like you know they look at the studies and some people respond better to high frequency training versus yeah. low or high volume versus low and, and i'm sure you know in terms of even macros like 
overall, most of the studies seem to show that calories and protein are much more important than trying to manipulate specific carb versus fat ratios. But I'm sure there are people who individually respond better to higher fats or lower fats, et cetera. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, the, the fundamentals are still going to be there. And, it, you know, it, it's, it doesn't sell as well. You know, it's nice to say, based on your genetics, like, this is what works for you, or we need yeah. to manipulate these hormones. But ultimately, at least as of now, we, we don't have that. Um, and so, yeah, and I don't, and I don't, it was really interesting because I was, we kind of, I kind of towards the tail end of my research career was when epigenetics, really the realization of how much mm -hmm. impact of epigenetics and even transgenerational epigenetics came to be. And it was almost like all the geneticists were like, oh, like, oh right, no. Like, right, yeah. Like, oh, it's like, so it's all that stuff. And now it's like, well, it could all be overridden. Sure. Um, and so, uh, it, it, so to have like, let's say, only looking at the genetic component of it is like, well, if everything was on and there was no epigenetic layering on top of it, then yes, right. that may be true. And, and so I think, I think that, and a lot of the people are like, well, should I get tested or not? I'm like, well, I think you can kind of figure it out. Like, I think yeah. you have, you know, you kind of like, well, like you said, like you tried it and it worked or it didn't work. So you go low, like try low carb and does it work for you? And then it's like, does it matter if it's physiological or psychological? Like people, yeah. like people always keep on pressing, especially with the ketogenic diet. It's like, I don't, I'm like, ah, I don't see the data that shows that it's all that special, but if it's working for you, then does it matter? Sure. Like, totally. does it, does ultimately, does it matter that like there's a paper? Yeah, that supports yeah it. I think it matters maybe from like a, a research and a few, and mechanistic standpoint, but yeah. from an individual standpoint, like, and, and some of us, like, I'm a very curious person, I like to know why things work. Yeah. But ultimately, for 98% of the population, it's kind of like, did it get you the results or not? And, you know, it, it becomes a problem, I think, when you have these like internet flame war, wars, and you're like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. keto worked for me, because, you know, manipulated insulin, and I could eat yeah. all the calories in the world, yeah. and it still worked. It's like, eh, maybe not. But, um, but like you said, ultimately, if you're looking for results, it just yeah, it doesn't matter. Results. Yeah, but yeah, it does drive me crazy, where it's like, well, why? Like, why is it like, you know, you'd want to see how, what, what, what exactly people do when mm -hmm. they go on these diets, because I think people's perception is different than like I've catch myself going is this true like am I eating more am I eating less and if you're not really tracking very religiously like all the time yeah then you really can't say for sure what you're doing like I think right. you're it's a really I would argue that at this point for you to be successful on a diet is that you have to have buy-in and it has to be caloric deficit and your yeah. buy-in will basically like like and that's a the why I think diets have become kind of weirdly the new religion yeah where people are very, like just they just buy in wholeheartedly, and I just have faith in this diet. Yeah, and it and it's worked for me, and it works for you because you have faith in it. Right. Yeah. For sure. So as far as like you know the future of research in in this realm, it could be as psychological or physiological. Is there anything that you're particularly excited about on the horizon? Uh, for like the genetics and obesity kind or, of thing, or, or even just, just yeah, I mean, as far as like you know your work with precision nutrition and, and coaching and things like that, like as far as this world of people, mostly, let's say, looking for like fat loss. Um, you yeah. know, is there any research that you, you find exciting out there? Uh, like all of it is really interesting to me mechanistically, like, cause, and I would like to see how it all fits together. But I really think like the appetite regulation stuff, and there's like a lot of, like a lot of the genetic stuff with that's linked to obesity is actually more like cognitive. Mm. Like linked to cognitive, it's not linked to metabolism, which yeah. I think people like are like always looking at that side of it, but it seems to be more likely to be um, like some sort of like reward 
like dopamine kind of regulatory yeah. factor or, or gene. And so that, I haven't looked at it much recently, but that area seems that, you know, the most interesting from a like a like genetic mechanistic kind of standpoint, because right. I think that ultimately that will be it. That will be, I think what will happen is it won't be anything like, oh, there's this gene that, that impacts thyroid or basal metabolic rate or whatever. I think it'll be a reward. Yeah. Yeah. I think the psychological side of it is really interesting. Um, and, and I think even just, I mean, there's a physiological aspect there as well with that, like as far as, you know, the neurotransmitters and, yeah. all, and all that. But a lot of times people will say, oh, my metabolism's blank, right? I can eat so much. I have a fast metabolism. We're yeah. slow. And I usually what I say is like, well, your metabolism can be different than others, obviously, but the largest factor is going to be your body weight typically and your muscle mass. And there are going to be variances, but a lot of what people don't consider is hunger and things like meat, right? Like non-exogenesis. Because the hunger thing is huge. I mean, most people don't realize if you're somebody who just has a low appetite, you know, you see this with like the teenager who seems like they can eat anything they want. And they probably are eating a lot. But you don't notice that, well, they just ate a whole pizza, but then they, they didn't eat, eat breakfast the next and day. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Because that's what I would do. I'm like, I can't gain weight. And it's like, well, you were like, you didn't eat breakfast because you're like, right. just did. Like, I, like I, would, I, I tend to get distracted and I just like mm-hmm. forget to eat. So it's like, well, if you're doing this on a regular basis, it's not like you have a fast metabolism. It's just like you're not actually eating. And, and again, it becomes down to like maybe a reward mechanism or your inse- like whatever the driver is for you to eat. Right. is not as high and and also stress i think the stress response is a really interesting mm-hmm. one where i think that some people when they're stressed just don't eat they're just like i'm yeah. not eating and other people they then totally. they will eat as as uh, to deal with stress and and this was interesting it happens a lot with it comes up with with uh, postpartum and, and breastfeeding women and like there's women there's women postpartum that will lose weight breastfeeding and lose almost too much weight and then there's women who like struggle to lose weight after and they're breastfeeding. So what's a people, women ask, well, what should I do? And it's like, it kind of seems that you kind of have to just like, if you're not losing weight and you want to lose weight, you kind of have to wait until you're done okay. breastfeeding. Cause it's, a, it's either lack of sleep or stress or what, like, it's a big question mark as far as why it, it and there isn't any research. It just seems from, from speaking to women that, and that they either, they struggle to lose weight and, and then they stop breastfeeding and then they can lose weight. And so like stress is, Stress could be an underlining component to that. Yeah, stress is a huge one. Sleep, which then could tie into how you're adjusting to stress. Um, But yeah, I mean, just when you're hungry, you're just aware. Like right now, if I, because I just finished dieting recently. So if I eat, let's say 3,000 calories on a given day, I might still be very hungry. Whereas if like in the off season bulking up, I might eat 3,000 and not think about food all day and almost be like, oh, wow, I have to actually make up for it at the end of the day. And, you know, that latter one, I'm thinking to myself, wow, I'm, I'm eating kind of whatever I want because whatever I want is way less, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing too, right? Is that people who, who like, if you're trying to gain weight mm-hmm. and I think eating, I th- and I guess it depends where your, where your, I guess, hunger cues lie, if you're like tend to forget to eat or not. Yeah. But I found like trying to force myself to eat was just like horrible. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you're like, I'm full and your body's like, we're done. And you're like, no, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, I, mean, I got to come back to this like in another 10 minutes or something because I can't yeah, go right now. Yeah, yeah so sure. I think it's, a, it's and I think it's a, it's a really interesting kind of weird world that 
outside of like sport and bodybuilding, like like well, mostly like let's say football and and sports that kind of need mass. Right. I think the idea that you would actually try to gain weight is just a little really out there. Weird. Yeah, because I was like, I think it was ten years I was trying to gain weight for basketball, but I was just work. I was wasn't eating enough. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really interested in putting that much effort in right. eating enough. <laughs> and then again, like you said, you have to track it to know where you're at. And I think mm-hmm. people misunderstand. The idea of like, I think you have to track, but you can't be fixed on the specific number. Yeah. Like, so if you're like 3,000 calories is what I'm supposed to hit, and you're hitting 3,000 calories, and you're religiously doing that, and you're not hitting through, and you're not gaining weight, then you need to eat more. Yeah. If you're like, should I do another equation? Should I do a DEXA? Should I do like, I'm like, no, no, no. Like, yeah, just eat more. <laughs> eat more, is, and then it may not be that you're eating 3,000 calories because maybe your numbers are off a little bit. So, but it doesn't matter. It's like right. a teeter totter, right? You just kind of like try to. But if you're trying to balance it, you just put kids on each side. You're not bringing out a scale, right? Yeah, I never understood the obsession with the equations. It was one of those things where it's like, and it, I mean, it's still to this day, I see people say, well, what equation do you use? How do I calculate it? And it's like, it, it literally doesn't matter. Whatever start you're number, doing. Start a number and start eating Pick more. a number. Right, yeah. Look at the scale and, you know, be consistent with it. And then either eat more or less depending on what the scale is doing. I find that people feel that if there's an equation involved, then it's more accurate. Right, like it's right, you know. Yeah, but. exactly. And I'm like, no, no, no. If it's if the outcome is not what you want it to be, then that is actually your your predict your basic your your out your measure of of accuracy. Is it totally. is your are you going in the right direction? And yeah, I get it all the time. People are like, what should I use? Should I use like indirect calorimetry or this or that? I'm like, no. Right. <laughs> right. But like, if your client wants to lose weight, how much are they eating right now? And try to accurately like get the portions, and even the calories don't necessarily, but get like the portions, and then just eat less of that same food. Yeah, if you're eating a lot of the same foods, I think that's yeah. the way to do it. Obviously, if you're eating a ton of different foods, it gets a little bit more complicated. Yeah. But Most people eat about the same fifteen foods. Yeah, they really do. You know, day in and day out. I think I know people who try to incorporate a lot of variety, and even, and they usually get tired of it. It becomes almost annoying. Like I think it's effort. Like it's a ridiculous amount of effort to go. Yeah, I'm, gonna eat, I'm gonna eat a different vegetable. It's like, oh okay, well how do you cook this vegetable? Where how does yeah. it last? It's like where is that? Okay, now we've like yeah, we now like yeah. So I think the novelty of uh, yeah. yeah. Like it's old. <laughs> yeah, well yeah, it's a it's a it's a weird yeah, it's too much I think um what is it like decision fatigue? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like sure. I just want to eat. It's like wearing the same clothes. It's like I just want to eat the same thing. And I have like the you know maybe maybe if I like you're lucky. I think people have twenty recipes that go to recipes. For yeah, food. if even that. Yeah. Right. Right. I think, but most likely, I think five are going at any given time. Right. Yep. All right. So this was a great talk. I really appreciate yeah. you coming on to talk with us today. And for people who want to find out more about you, see more that you've written or what you're doing, where can they find you? Uh, precisionnutrition.com uh, and that, yeah that's probably the easiest way the blog there um, and then uh, yeah I think that's about I don't know if they have an author page yet just some talk okay. alright well yeah I'll look on that and I'll have links to everything below cool